Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and we've spent the last few episodes stateside, but for our story tonight, we're headed back to good old London, England for a classic Victorian lodging house scandal and murder. Plot twists and colorful characters abound in tonight's case. This is the story of the Euston Square murder. But first, a Victorian society tip. One of the subjects of our story tonight was regarded as an eccentric spinster. From Wikipedia, a spinster refers to an unmarried woman who is older than what is perceived as the prime age range during which women usually marry. It can also indicate that a woman is considered unlikely to ever marry. The term historically had been applied with a derogatory connotation, but so far as the spinster in tonight's story, I think she just might have been ahead of her time. You can form your own opinion of her as you listen to tonight's episode, but for a tip tonight, I thought I'd share some Victorian-era reasons why one may or may not want to be married. The way the Victorian era has been depicted in popular modern culture would have us believing that all Victorian women were desperate to be married. Most of them wanted nothing more than to become housewives and mothers, and those who dared to push back were cautioned against their fate of becoming a dreadful old spinster. Modern film and literature would also have us believe that Victorian men were simply seeking wives to take care of their every whim or just to gain a dowry. And honestly, those representations were not wrong, but the motivation to marry or not to marry did vary by class and did evolve throughout the 19th century. So let's get into some of the reasons. The first reason was economics. Marriage was more of a financially motivated decision in this case. Women weren't exactly allowed to make their own money. So marriage was one way that a woman could gain access to funds for the things she needed. In this case, an economically motivated marriage was kind of a two-way street for men and women alike. In most cases, any assets or property owned by the wife would permanently be turned over to her husband once they were married. However, a man had to be sure he could support a wife and children once he became married. This is one reason we often see Victorian marriages where the man seems to be quite a bit older than the lady. He had to wait until he was established in his career and earning enough to support a house and family. Because what good woman would want to marry a man who couldn't provide those things? Another reason Victorians chose to get married was convenience. Unlike economical reasons, this one does feel a bit more like a one-way street, benefiting the menfolk. Men could not be the breadwinners and take care of a house, manage staff, and keep up with correspondence that would afford them the networking and support in their careers. Now, many a Victorian, or even a modern-day wife, may embrace this role, but in the Victorian era, a lady better hope her husband had reasonable expectations of her. All you have to do is listen to a few episodes of this podcast to know what could happen if a man became displeased with his wife. The last reason we'll talk about is love. Upper and middle classes felt more pressure to marry for the first two reasons we discussed, but lower classes often left home earlier to earn a living for themselves, and as such, they were less influenced by the expectations of their families. They could wait to marry until they found someone they enjoyed being with. As the 19th century drew on, though, the idea of companionate marriage became more attractive to young people. In fact, the idea started to spread that it would be better not to be married at all rather than choose a marriage for the sake of money or convenience. This summarizes three of the most prominent influencers in deciding whether or not to marry, but of course, there were other reasons as well. In 1899, a weekly British variety magazine called Tidbits asked single women to write in with why they were not married. The best response would be printed in the next issue, and the writer would receive a prize. The editor ended up publishing 21 of the best responses and awarded each the prize money. 
These responses circulate from time to time on social media, so you may have heard some of them before, but even if you have, they're so good, I think they're worth repeating here. We'll start with Miss S.A. Roberts, who stated, because, like a piece of rare china, I am breakable and mendable, but difficult to match. As Miss Sarah so poetically wrote, like the wild mustang of the prairie that roams unfettered, tossing its head in utter disdain at the approach of the lasso, which, if once round his neck, proclaims him captive, so I find it more delightful to tread on the verge of freedom and captivity than to allow the snarer to cast around me the matrimonial lasso. From Miss Florence, who does not mince words, because I have other professions open to me in which the hours are shorter, the work more agreeable, and the pay possibly better. Miss Sparrow, calling it how she sees it, because I do not care to enlarge my menagerie of pets, and I find the animal man less docile than a dog, less affectionate than a cat, and less amusing than a monkey. From Miss Laura, who sounds like she's seen more than one marriage go bad, responds, because matrimony is like an electric battery, where once you join hands, you can't let go, however much it hurts. And, as when embarked on a toboggan slide, you must go to the bitter end, however much it bumps. And my absolute favorite from Miss Emmeline, because men like three-cornered tarts are deceitful. They are very pleasing to the eye, but on closer acquaintanceship prove hollow and stale, consisting chiefly of puff with a minimum of sweetness and an unconquerable propensity to disagree with one. We have a new Patreon to welcome this week. Welcome and thank you to our newest member, Mary. I am so glad you're here. If you would like to learn more about the Good Night for Our Murder Patreon, you can do so on my website at agoodnightforourmurder.com. A Good Night for Our Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Severin Bastendorf owned and operated a bamboo furniture business in the Bloomsbury district of central London in the late 1870s. He was born in Luxembourg in 1845, moved to Paris when he was 15, and was forced to emigrate to the UK about 10 years later due to the Franco-Prussian War. He met and married Mary Pierce, and due to the success of his business, they were able to purchase an impressive three-story property in a Euston Square. Severin ran his business with 10 hired employees out of a workshop attached to the back of his house. He also rented the rooms not used by his wife and their four children to lodgers. With these stories that take place in the Victorian era, especially in London, we often talk about boarding houses with lodgers. And what that looks like in this case is more of what we might akin to a bed and breakfast style accommodation. Lodgers had their own bedrooms, but everything else was shared as common space. Usually meals were part of the package deal as well, including bed and breakfast, which is exactly what it sounds like, Half board, which is a bedroom, breakfast, and dinner, or full board, which is a room, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All these meals were prepared and served by the host or household staff, and lodgers would take all their meals together. Sometimes the property owner also lived there, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were very communal, and sometimes the lodgers just lived separate lives, just coming and going as they needed. What Severin was running was a combined private home and boarding house where he and his family resided alongside a couple of lodgers. The family also employed a full-time live-in maid, Hannah Dobbs, who kind of ran the show so far as managing the lodgers. In the fall of 1878, one of the lodgers staying at the Bassendorf home was Matilda Hewish. Hewish, however, was an alias. Her real name was Matilda Hacker. And the reason she was living under an alias is because she hated paying taxes. 
At the age of 66, she was actually an independently wealthy spinster who owned several properties herself. She could very easily pay taxes if she wanted to. She just didn't want to. And I must admit, I somewhat admire her for that. A little more about Matilda Hacker because she seems like a lot of fun. She was born in Canterbury in 1811, and she had one sister named Amelia. Their father was a stone engraver, which earned him a respectable income, allowing him to purchase multiple properties, and he and his family were considered prominent citizens within the community. His girls, though, were regarded as rather eccentric. First, the pair were inseparable. By the time they were in their 50s, neither had married, so, you know, wildly unusual for the Victorian era, and they had a habit of dressing to the nines in matching outfits and strolling along the waterfront at Margate or Ramsgate. They wore brightly colored silk dresses, contrasting sashes with large buckles, lace shawls, large brooches with oversized colored stones, and felt hats accessorized with feathers. Together, they were known as the Canterbury Bells. Their fashion was regarded as more appropriate for teenagers, less so for women in their 50s. I bet they looked amazing, though. Matilda took on ownership of some of the properties her father had purchased, but as I mentioned, she refused to pay taxes on them. She was just against the principle of the thing. For this, she spent a short time in Westgate Prison before some of her jewelry was seized as payment. The stint in prison, though, did not break her, and when she was ordered to pay for installation of water mains to her properties, she changed her name and fled. By about 1873, both her father and sister had died, so now all the income from their properties was flowing to her. Again, she could easily have paid the city what they were asking, but it was just against her morals. So instead, she assumed different aliases and moved around to different lodging houses, all this despite owning multiple properties herself. This brings us back to the late 1870s when Matilda, then known as Ms. Ewish, was boarding at the Bassendorf home. In the fall of 1878, the Bassendorf's maid, Hannah, informs the master and mistress of the house that Ms. Ewish has settled her last month's rent and up and left that past Sunday when they were both out for the day. Severn Bassendorf had been away on a hunting trip, and his wife Mary had gone to visit her mother. Hannah and Mary go up to Matilda's room to look it over and get it ready for the next lodger. They find a stain on the carpet that seems to have been cleaned and also broken glass on the floor. They assume Matilda had a mishap with the rug at some point, but so far as the glass, Hannah may or may not have told some story about having accidentally broken the lamp herself. Later on, someone remember her having a cut on her hand around this time. Maybe. Anyway, timelines are a little hazy for the events here, but in about November of 1878, Hannah visits her parents with her employer's brother, Peter Bassendorf, who she claimed was her husband. She says they'll be taking a trip to Germany to be with his family shortly, so if they don't hear from her for a while, it's because she's traveling. Time goes by, and they don't hear from her. And they don't hear from her, and they don't hear from her. It seems during this time, she also left the employ of the Bassendorfs in Bloomsbury as well. But life goes on at the Bassendorf house. Severin continues to run his workshop, and they continue to take on lodgers. In May of 1879, they have someone interested in renting a room in the cellar. The cellar of the house was also used for coal storage. These are not luxury accommodations by any means, but if you need a place to stay, and it's what you can afford, the room in the coal cellar sounds great. One of the errand boys employed by Severin, 15-year-old William Stroman, is sent to clean out the coal cellar in anticipation of the new lodger's arrival. When he digs into the pile of coal to begin moving it, he finds a human foot. He bolts out of the cellar, completely terrified, and runs to the workshop in the back where he tells the other workers what he's found. At first, they don't believe him, and they even have a bit of fun at his expense. 
but he convinces Severin's brother Joseph just to come have a look with him. And when he does, they realize the boy is not crazy, he's not lying, that is indeed a human foot. The other shop workers begin digging through the coal and they uncover a very decomposed body. The hands are missing, but small bones believed to be fingers are found in the rubble. The legs below the knees are also detached, but this is believed to be due to the state of decomposition rather than being removed. There are still small patches of hair attached to the head, but by and large, most of the body has rotted away. What also remains, though, are some shreds of garments, including a silk dress, cloak, black silk petticoat, and some brown-colored lace that have once been part of a shawl. Now remember, this is all covered in coal, so it's all blackened. It's extremely difficult to make out anything. But they do also note that the body has a rope wrapped around its neck. So there is a dead woman in the cellar. But who is she? Doctors presume she must have been there for a while, maybe nearly a year, but possibly longer, and they estimate her to be about 55 to 60 years old at the time of her death. At first, they thought it was maybe a homeless person or a drunk that had been hiding out down there. Then they theorized that the last owner of the house was known for having sex workers over, and perhaps it was one of those girls. Both these theories are ruled out, though, due to the higher quality of the garments the body was found in. Now, news of this is spreading far and wide, and Hannah Dobbs' parents reach out to the investigators, saying their daughter worked for the Bastendorfs, and they haven't heard from her in quite a while. So investigators start asking around after Hannah Dobbs and learn it's been quite some time since anyone has seen her. The last anyone remembers of her in the Bloomsbury area was that she'd been visiting some pawn shops with some jewelry that previous fall. They do find her, though, and it turns out she's been in prison for stealing, which explains why her parents hadn't heard from her. So she is not the woman in the basement. They notice the body has none or very few teeth, and they reason that any respectable woman would not go around without her teeth in her mouth. So they contact a local dentist, and one comes forward who says he had fitted someone for some bridge work several months ago, but that person never came back for them. They take the unclaimed bridge work and pop it into the unidentified woman's mouth, and they fit perfectly. But the dentist didn't write down the name of the customer, nor can he remember who it was. Luckily, someone else who knew someone with a connection to the Bassendorf house has been paying attention to the news, and that was Edward Hacker, who was looking for his sister, Matilda. Edward recognizes some of the garments and positively identifies the body as his sister. They go back to the dentist and ask if the name Matilda rings a bell, and he thinks, yes, it does. So the woman in the coal cellar is determined to be Matilda Hacker. But how did she get there? Based on Matilda's last known correspondence, they place her time of death somewhere around October 10, 1878, so about seven months ago. That particular week in October was the one where the Bassendorf family had been away and learned of Matilda's sudden departure upon their return. The only people on the house that week were other lodgers and Hannah. Police look more closely into the items pawned by Hannah and discover they belong to Matilda. She also apparently gave a ring to her sister and kept a watch for herself that witnesses were pretty sure belonged to Matilda as well. They dug into her past and learned she repeatedly had been arrested for theft. They take into account the stain that was found on the carpet after Matilda vacated her room, Hannah's mention of the broken lamp and caught in her hand, and the rope around Matilda's neck indicating she was dragged rather than carried down to the coal cellar, and they arrest Hannah Dobbs for murder. The accusation was that Hannah had murdered Matilda in her room that weekend in October with the motive of money, then used the rope around her neck to drag her down to the coal cellar and hide the body. That Christmas, Severin actually found a bone with meat attached to it in the coal cellar, and he showed it to his wife Mary, complaining that this new maid they had hired to replace Hannah had thrown away a perfectly good leg of lamb. 
On a separate occasion, the maid also showed Mary what she thought was a finger bone that she found in the cellar, but Mary dismissed it. At a later date, the maid found another piece of bone, but having been dismissed once already, she kept it to herself. During the trial, it was revealed that not everything was above board in the Bassendorf household. While it is true that Hannah was engaged to her employer's brother Peter, it seems as if Hannah and Severin had an unusually close relationship as well. Several witnesses testified that they had seen Severin and Hannah out socializing. Also, it was said that they would give each other small gifts from time to time, including Hannah claiming that Severin actually gave her the watch that had belonged to Matilda. Severin denied all of this, but his own brother testified that he himself had confronted Severin about his relationship with Hannah. Truly salacious stuff. So far as Hannah's defense, they testified that Hannah had never said she broke a lamp or hurt her hand in Matilda's room, though Peter did remember Hannah having a bandage on her hand around that time. Also, when Mary Bassendorf visited her mother on weekends, she usually left the children with Hannah, and it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for Hannah to carry out a murder and body disposal if she was charged with watching the children. But then again, Mary Bassendorf couldn't actually remember if she had left the children with Hannah that particular weekend at all. Due to the decomposition of the body, though, they were unable to identify a cause of death. As such, they argued that due to the rope around her neck, they couldn't 100% rule out suicide as her cause of death. Someone still may have hidden the body since one can't bury themselves under coal once they're dead, but that's not murder. The jury was reminded that the penalty for murder was death by hanging, and after 25 minutes of deliberation, they found Hannah not guilty. Juries at that time simply did not like to send women to the gallows. And with that, Hannah walked free. After the trial, a journalist offered to pay her for her side of the story, and as it turns out, Hannah was eager to tell it. She said that yes, she was having an affair with Severin Bassendorf. It had been going on for some time, right under his wife's nose. It was the reason he hired her and moved her into the house in the first place. He would come into her room that she shared with the children to have sex at night. Eventually, she'd fallen pregnant, though, and Severin came up with a plan for her to start up a relationship with his brother and say the baby was his. Now, she did actually have a relationship with Severin's brother. That part is true. But to what end? Well, it depends who you believe. But for a while, she carried on with both of them, Peter being completely oblivious to her relationship with his brother. Hannah says she ended up losing the pregnancy, but she goes on to implicate Severin in the murder of Matilda with his brother as an accomplice. The way she tells it, it wasn't her who was there the day Matilda up and left, but Severin had been in the house alone and informed her of Matilda's departure. She claimed she herself had found Matilda's body in the coal cellar, and when she tried to speak to Severin and Peter about it, they threatened to pin the whole thing on her. She said she was fearful of them because she'd actually already seen Severin murder someone else. She said a homeless boy had been found hiding in the workshop, and the brothers had beat him to death. She'd said nothing of this in court, but she did try at the time to implicate a previous lodger named Mr. Finley in Matilda's death. Hannah painted him as kind of a loose cannon that carried a loaded pistol with him at all times. She said he'd taken a fancy to her and confided in her that he'd killed a man before, then he tried to convince her to flee to America with him. In her story to the press, though, she turns it around and alleges that Severin had perhaps also killed Mr. Finley. She also told a story about one of the younger Brassendorf brothers who'd gotten a puppy and gotten tired of it, so they used it for target practice. She wrapped up by explaining that she obviously feared for her life living under these conditions, which is why she was stealing and pawning things from around the house. She was trying to save a little bit of money so she could make her escape. 
People lose their minds over this story, and I honestly don't know what to think. The story is pretty sensational, and it conveniently put blame on literally everyone else except her. I think there probably is a kernel of truth to parts of it, but I definitely do not buy the entire thing. Either way, Severin tried to sue for libel, but the paper countered that there was plenty of evidence to suggest he and Hannah Dobbs were having an affair. This caught the court's attention, who charged Severin with perjury, for which he was found guilty and sentenced to a year in prison. When Severin went to prison for perjury, his wife was pregnant with their fifth child. By the time he got out, his marriage, for obvious reasons, was beyond repair, his furniture business was floundering, and again, also for obvious reasons, they could not find any more lodgers willing to rent out their rooms. He picked up the libel lawsuit again, and it was actually settled out of court, awarding him £500, which is £33,000, or about $43,000 in today's money. There's kind of two versions of what happened to Severin after this, but they both end with him slowly descending into madness. He suffered some sort of break from reality, after which he spent some time in a lunatic asylum. One version claims he took his children back to his home country of Luxembourg, where he left them, then came back to London and walked into a police station ranting and raving that his brother and his wife killed Matilda, and then he either ended up living alone in the house at Euston Square, or he was committed again. Either way, it's a messy end to a very messy story. Hannah, it seems, changed her name and faded into obscurity. We don't know what happened to her. So what do you think is the real truth here? It's my personal opinion that parts of the story seem true. I think I do buy Hannah's story about the affair with Severin as well as his brother. Both those claims were backed up. But I don't think that had anything to do with the murder of Matilda Hacker. I do think Hannah murdered her and that she acted alone. Maybe Matilda caught her in the act of robbing her. She probably hid the body, maybe with the intention of moving it later on, but the opportunity never presented itself. As time went on, she knew that she had to get the hell out of that house before it was discovered. Poor Matilda, though. She definitely didn't deserve to go out like that. I am interested to hear what you think, though. If you head over to Instagram or YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder, you can let me know there, plus see some photos of Matilda, Hannah, and some police illustrations. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're there on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is another story of a body found hidden in the basement of an upscale Victorian London home. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. And to accompany episode 29 about the Houston Square murder of Matilda Hacker, I have another story of a body found in the basement of an upscale Victorian London home. This is the story of the Harley Street mystery. In 1859, Jacob Henriques purchased the home at 139 Harley Street. 
He worked as a merchant of what I'm not sure, but he was quite successful. And over the next 20 years, he, his wife, and three daughters would enjoy a comfortable, affluent lifestyle. The Henrik's family employed several domestic servants. But when he would travel for work, his family would often accompany him, leaving the house on Harley Street empty. During these periods, he would terminate employment with his staff in London, except for a caretaker who looked after the Harley Street house. As such, no one was ever really under his employment for very long. In January of 1879, 68-year-old Jacob was made aware of an unpleasant smell somewhere in the basement. Six months later, the temperatures had warmed up, and with that, the smell worsened. Jacob hired a plumber to look into the matter and clear the drains for the house, suspecting this was the problem. And reportedly, it helped for a little while, but soon the smell returned. It was described as almost unbearable, but honestly, no one was in the basement all that much, and let's face it, sometimes Victorian London was stinky, even wealthier houses. A full year and a half later, though, on June 3, 1880, the footman, William Tinap, was complaining to the butler, John Spenlove, about the foul smell, and the two men resolve themselves to get to the bottom of it then and there. They make their way down to the basement and find that the smell is the strongest in the area of the house's cistern. A cistern is a water-holding tank for the house, and in this case, it was an iron cistern that was held up by four legs or posts.